Video games have taught me so many things, like history, music, math, but more than anything else, they've taught me not to turn my device off while the game is saving. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the learning to you. That's right, this week we're talking about edutainment games from the boom times of the 1990s to the more complex but arguably even more educational games of today. Class is in session, and there will be a test. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Shire. Hello. Hello. Hey. It's us again. Once it's again. It's the three sure of us is. again. Wow. Deja vu. <laughs> yeah, this, it feels like we've done this before. Does really making a habit out of this or? thing. We're yeah. in a time loop where like we have it. to record a podcast every single week. <laughs> every single week. But it's always a little different. Just a little bit. Slightly different. Yeah, we Slightly keep, we just keep a little changing different. it around, a... seeing if people notice or not, if what we changed mm-hmm. this time. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a spot the differences game. Right. One of these days we'll escape the loop. Seeing if people notice that we make the same jokes every week. <laughs> they haven't yet so far. <laughs> they haven't yet. Nobody's, said it. <laughs> nobody's pointed out that we made the same jokes every week. That's true. Though we do, so we do do the same thing every week at the beginning here. Where we say that we are a listener-supported podcast. Mm -hmm. And if you like Triple Click, you can support our show. And you can also support our lovely network, Maximum Fun, which uh, we're very proud to be a part of. We're in our third year now Wow! on Maximum Fun. And also the third year since we started our show. Maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe maybe not. (laughs) There's no Um, way to know. um, we, we love being a Maximum Fun podcast, and we love all of the members who support our show. And if you want to count your name among them, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. And if you become a member, you will get access to bonus episodes that we record. We do one every month. We have done one every month since we started our show. So we're in the 20s now. There are dozens, literal <laughs> dozens of bonus episodes that you could listen to. And the one that we're recording for this month, we're going to be doing it right at the end of the month. And it's going to be a check-in on Marvel and Marvel TV shows and movies, the Marvel Expanded Universe. I suppose it's still the cinematic universe, even though a lot of it's happening (laughs) on TV. And there's going to be a big Comic-Con announcement, so Mm -hmm. we'll probably talk some about that. So we're kind of taking the temperature of Marvel. It'll just be an hour of us just live recapping whatever Kevin Feige has to say on the stage. <laughs> We're not even yeah. really going to get to Moon Knight, I don't think. Yeah, We're just going to be talking doubtful. talking outfits, talking red carpet. Mm-hmm. No. What kind of hat he wore. We'll talk about Miss Marvel. It'll be good. It'll be good. That'll be a lot of fun. And um, we are also, this is also a little bit of a scheduling announcement. We're going to be off next week. And instead of a regular episode, we're going to run an older bonus episode. So if you're not a member, you're going to get a taste of what those bonus episodes can be like in the feed next week. So again, that's MaximumFun.org slash join. Become a member, support our show, get free podcast episodes. Now, I, I hear that Jason has a correction or a clarification <laughs> he would like to make. Jason, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so at the beginning of last week's episode, we were talking about Gilligan's Island. I don't remember why. I have no, <laughs> no idea how that came up. But... Uh, uh, we were surprised that it ended after only three seasons, and we were talking about how like they should do a Serenity-style thing. Turns out, as a few listeners have pointed out, they did a Serenity-style like mm-hmm. Way before Serenity, Island. right? It's called... Oh, yeah, of course. Of so course. really, we shouldn't uh, be calling Serenity it a Serenity-style like thing. Ser- Joss yeah. Whedon <laughs> ripped off Gilligan's Island. Yes, I'm that. only bringing that up because that's the, re- that's the point that you guys brought up. <laughs> I also mentioned the Deadwood movie, mm. maybe a more successful example. <laughs> Rescue from Gilligan's Island is a 1978 comedy film that continues the adventures of the ship great Rex Amazing. Castaways. Kind of a spoiler in the title there. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I guess well, I guess I they're guess trying that's... to just make everybody feel better. Like that it's would be why conclusion. you'd even go. What if you went but to the movie the and they point. didn't make it off? That would be <laughs> they <wild>. all die. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so yes, so they do, and then there's the flash forward episode where Gilligan is like, "We have to go back, Kate. We have to go back." <laughs> it's <an> important correction. <laughs> so you know, I mentioned that I'd never really watched Gilligan's Island, but I was aware of the plot and the story of Gilligan's Island, and the reason for that is because of the Weird Al Yankovic parody song "Isle Thing," which was sung to the melody of. Uh, Tone Loke's Wild Thing. And mm-hmm. it was about how he was dating a woman and she loved that Gilligan's Isle thing. And then he recaps the plot of the whole show <laughs> while kind of rapping. And, uh, and that's how I knew about Gilligan's Island when I was a kid. I like the professor. He always saved their butts. He could build a nuclear reactor from a couple of coconuts. She said that guy's a genius. I shook my head and laughed. I said, if he's so fly, then tell me why he couldn't build a lousy raft. Good stuff. I watched sure. episodes of it. That was how I went about it at my grandma's mm. house. Because as everyone knows, no TV at my house. And we're going to get into that this week because we it's related to this week's topic, which is something that was allowed in my household, edutainment games. Can mm. I just say, I love the word edutainment. It's, it's great. a pretty good word. It's a pretty good <laughs> word. It has stood the test of time. I Is that a, a neologism, a portmanteau? I think it's a, it portmanteau. it's a portmanteau. It's a portmanteau. It's a portmanteau. A combination of education and entertainment, which I think I only ever hear applied to the word games. But I guess there's also edutainment television shows, movies, sure. etc. Anyway, I had many experiences with edutainment games. As a kid, I talked about Amazon Trail pretty recently on this show, which is part of what inspired this hot topic. But that wasn't my favorite edutainment game. I'll get to that in a minute. First, I want to hear from you two about what your favorite was. Jason, why don't you go first? Oh, man, I'm so excited. I loved edutainment games back (laughs) in the day, even though I didn't. uh, Part of the fun of them is you don't really realize they're edutainment games. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're uh, fun. I have have a very quick story before I talk about my favorites. So I used to love this game called Sid Meier's Colonization, which was this kind of like uh, Revolutionary War, U.S. expansion, settlers, uh, spinoff of Civilization. And that is absolutely not an entertainment game. (laughs) But at some point in second grade, I have this very strong memory. It was either second or third grade of we had to like bring in something, some sort of like media that taught us something about history. My assignment was to find something about Thomas Jefferson. And in colonization, you get to kind of like randomly um, recruit the founding fathers, like this group of like 50 luminaries to your cause. Wow. Um, and so every so often, you basically you fill up a bar of Liberty Bells and you, you fill that bar over time, like in the way it's a turn-based strategy game, right? So you fill it up over time. And so it could take like 20 turns, but you fill, you fill one up. And then you get to recruit from one of five random founding fathers, they're called. And it's just a bunch of historical figures and one of them is Thomas Jefferson so I brought this in and I'm playing the game in front of our entire class being like oh we're gonna get to Thomas Jefferson soon except because it's random you might not get to Thomas Jefferson for like hours and hours of playing so I was just sitting there playing this game I managed to waste the entire (laughs) class period just playing this game without ever getting to Thomas Jefferson the teacher was like wow okay that was really (laughs) I'm just sitting there playing this game in front of the entire class I'm picturing you you're kind of sweating you're like I mean he's gonna turn 
turn up. This guy will be here any second, <laughs> yeah, guys. It was so funny in retrospect. I think I was a little was embarrassed funny. at wow. the time. Did you get a like a check minus on that assignment because Thomas Jefferson wasn't <laughs> featured in the game? Or was I'm this... sure I did. I'm sure I did. But anyway, to actually answer your question, my favorite edutainment game at a, as, a, as a child was, I had a few, Treasure Mountain was one of them, Math Blasters was one of them, but my favorite was definitely Oregon Trail. And in fact, I, which is obviously the classic, and mm-hmm. in fact, I actually um, replayed a little bit of the original Oregon Trail uh, this week to prepare for this episode, and it's it's quite a game. It's quite a fascinating game. Um, for those people who are not familiar, it is this kind of, so there was actually a text-based version of Oregon Trail in 1971, but the I one know. that we all think about, the, the most people grew up with was 1985, which was it introduced graphics to the equation. It wasn't just text. But basically the concept is you are a uh, settler heading west to go and find gold in the great gold rush of the, uh, what was it, the 17th century? Yeah, 17th century. And no. 19th century. 19th century. Sorry, 19th wow. century. you learned nothing from Oregon. This is Trail. the first of, I think, many, many times we'll demonstrate how little we learned from <laughs> these games. I did the thing where I reversed the numbers. I was like, I know 1800s are either 17th or 19th century, mm-hmm. and I, I reversed it. But Anyway, 19th century, you're heading west. You're on this precarious trail full of rivers and deer mm-hmm. and, and dysentery. And the wagon train. You're on a covered and wagon. wagon. You're on the wagon train with your family, and you have to survive and collect as many points as possible at the end by hopefully surviving the, mm-hmm. the journey. Um, and you have to hunt for food, and you have to caulk your wagon to cross rivers. Oh, my <laughs> God, there's so many rivers. You gotta caulk your wagon. You well, got you to. Know, Fording the wagon always screws you, while caulking the wagon always is always the way to go. It, it, anyway, it wasn't really there was absolutely nothing educational about the game, but for some reason it was entertainment. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess there, there was were very some little. historical facts in there. You could like when you got to landmarks, you could like click the option to like read about what the landmark was, but you didn't even have to. It was all optional. Mm-hmm. It sort of raises the question of what you're supposed to be learning. Like in terms of raw history facts, bolded words from the history textbook, it probably didn't do a great job of teaching those. Right. But it certainly taught a lot of logistics and travel and sort of realities of that time period and travel in that time period. And, and that, it, I mean... It, that sticks with you. You know, you could die of dysentery. Yeah, you could die of any number of diseases. Yeah, it allowed you to feel the precarity. It allowed you to feel how dangerous it was to actually go on that the Oregon Trail. So that, that I guess, is a useful lesson. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. it also taught me that if you just rest for a few days, you can cure actually any disease. So <laughs> that's true. Well, that's true. I mean, and I think so, that's yeah, true. true. Yeah, and I <laughs> refuse to hear otherwise. Uh, Kirk, what was your favorite edutainment game? My favorite edutainment game is a very famous one that a lot of listeners will know, and it's, well, it's a series that's now called Carmen Sandiego, mm-hmm. and the original game in this series was Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Can you play the is, music? Can you play the Rockefeller yeah. song? Well, so that's from the TV show. I should I be know, clear. I know. That that is, still, um, every time I hear the name, you got to think of the, the music. So the music you're hearing right now is Rockapella, wonderful theme song from the Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego television show, which was made after the the games became popular. But um, my favorite of all of these games was the 1989 game. I believe this was the fifth game in the series. Where in time is Carmen Sandiego? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. classic. 
this is a classic, and I believe the most the most successful one. And I liked a lot of things about it. I actually watched this a wonderful video from a YouTube channel called LGR that was sort of a review retrospective on this game, just to take myself back to playing it. And there are a lot of things that I loved about it that I'll that I'll get into. But the first thing I want to talk about is the cover art for these early games. For these early games, so I'm going to send you. Th- I'm going to send you to an image. Great. Love so this. I'm gonna send. We're gonna do a series of images, and I'll link these in the show notes. So Jason, you're first. Can you describe the image that I just sent you in GChat? Yeah, there's like a, a a big magnifying glass that is on top of what appears to be like an a picture, a postcard, and then uh, the postcard is on top of a passport, hinting that you have to go through the world to different mm. countries. And the magnifying glass has a big picture, uh, zoomed in picture of Carmen San Diego on this on this picture. So you're like looking for her. Across across the world. Yeah, and it's crucially, I think crucially, it's real objects. And it's the kind of the desk of intrigue, which was something that mm. I was really into as a kid. I almost wanted to make desks of intrigue where there's like a passport and a magnifying glass and like uh-huh, a hunting uh-huh. knife and, you know, like stuff that like that indicates like a map with circles drawn there's on There's like it. a folded newspaper of some sort with Sri Lanka highlighted. Right, and Sri Lanka is highlighted. There's a key, there's a like a key. rusty key. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Gotta have a key on your desk is of that intrigue. a gun at the bottom? What is that? Or some type of metal? Maybe you're handcuffs. Some handcuffs. Oh, handcuffs. Those are handcuffs. handcuffs. Of course, because you're handcuffs. you're chasing Carmen San Diego, and it's a real woman, a photo of a real woman, and it's. I think that these these covers are so cool because of what they imply about the world of Carmen San Diego. Okay, so here's another one, um, Maddie. You can describe this one. All right. Great. Okay, so this is the cover of Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego. This is also a photograph. Don't know if they got the same actress back. We get a full body shot of her. It might be her, yeah. She does look the same. Um, So you are opening the door. I'm I'm interpreting this hand on the door handle as you, the player. It's the opening, shadow, the, shadow the trench coat. Opening yes. the door to reveal that you've finally found Carmen Sandiego in a dingy hotel room a somewhere. A seedy motel. Yeah. Definitely a motel. In San Francisco, it looks like. I see the Transamerica building out there. Yeah, it does. It does. It's a San Francisco mm-hmm. motel. And she has kind of an old-timey suitcase with, like, socks and a slip spilling out. And she's wearing her red dress and her big coat with a I think a fur lining I mean it's not this mm-hmm. was not the red coat that we're all familiar with from the animated right. version but the red dress though she is, she wearing, is wearing a red. red dress she's always stolen some precious artifacts if she has to hide it in that coat right right mm. obviously mm-hmm. it's it's funny that she's stealing things while wearing a dress and high heels as opposed to like sort of a <laughs> cat suit situation but she's she's really just going around wearing a dress I, I feel like they, they kind of changed that for some of the animated versions later they try to give her yes. some oh, more yes. practical she's, outfits. She's a much more a much more of a cat looks much more like a, a film noir femme fatale here rather than a cat yes. burglar. Kind of yeah more of a uh, more of a mastermind than a cat burglar. Okay mm-hmm. and here's the last one and this is my favorite game. This is the one that I played a whole bunch of and um, I'll describe this one because it's the best ever <laughs> oh but God. I sent it to both of you so you can look at it. This is where <laughs> There is a, a sort of <laughs> collection of Renaissance era or like, 
I guess, kind of Renaissance era people with their frilly coats and their hats. And there's like a guy who looks like he's maybe uh, associated with the church. There's another knight with like a rapier. They're all with the mustaches and the hats and the big poofy dresses. They all look completely shocked. And the object of their fascination is Carmen Sandiego in her red jacket. Now she's in a red coat sitting on a floating time machine that is labeled the Vial 2000. I believe it says time transporter and she's like floating in the air and they're all like chasing her as she makes off with what looks like some sort of crown so she is fully pulling off a heist in a time machine on this one (laughs) incredible and then i am i am actually going to send one more thing because i want (laughs) to talk about it as well and um i think you will enjoy it this is the entire rest of the show by the way it's just one more image different and it's and it is um jason what is this image Where where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego? That is so funny. I didn't realize they got this granular. So they did once. So okay, okay. <laughs> this wasn't successful enough to justify all nifty at fifty point, United at, States. Wow. At some point, by the way, you have to explain how this game actually plays. But yes, I will. I will. Now, now we've, we've talked about so, dissection. The well, the this is the the magic of this game, I think, is in the cover art and in all of the cool stuff that came with it and the way that it made you feel like you were an investigator. So these are largely geography and then in the time series, historical uh, learning games where you learn different facts about different places around the world or the USA or in time or North Dakota, you know, depending on what the game is trying to teach you. Carmen San Diego is a master thief. She has a team of of bandits. So you start with the low-level crooks who work for her and her organization, Vile, V-I-L-E. Um, they all have amazing names. I was looking up the names in... Um, where in time there are names like Lynn Gweeney or mm. Sharon Sharalike or Mini Series and on and on and on. What? There are so many. Mini Series. <laughs> yes. And don't forget Nosmo King. Wow. <laughs> Which is really Nosmo King, I guess. And I don't know if Nosmo is a name. Anyhow, you're always chasing one of these people and you have to, at least in time, you have to kind of figure out through clues that you get at a location where the person you're chasing has gone next and also who they are because each member of the rogues gallery has a unique like you know male likes french authors a fan of this type of cinema so there will be other types of learning as well like you'll have they'll be like they like this author and it's a french author and you just have to know who that is though they also always come with some sort of attached like book or guide the first one came with a world almanac i'll never forget that uh, where in time came with a desk encyclopedia which was this full book that like comes out of the box and you have to use that it has all the information that you're going to need to play the game and there's also some copy protection um at one point you have to like look up you know on page 450 what's the third word on from the top of the page just to That's make funny. sure you're not stealing the game so these games are great um i played where in time most of all And that's probably the most famous one. It was remade as a point-and-click adventure game. This became like a whole huge franchise and is kind of, it's emblematic of the peak of the edutainment era. They were made by Broderbund, which was then bought by, what's the name of the the learning company who bought Broderbund, the makers of this game. Very successful games. Of course, culturally impactful, like we made a TV show. There's a board game. There were multiple TV shows. There was a Wear in Time TV show. This whole era, like all through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Carmen Sandiego was very hot. And there's even like a Netflix animated series now. This is still sort of a thing. <laughs> it's pretty good. And just it's pretty to, cute. And just to say where that North Dakota came from, um, there was a, a 
aborted initiative to do one for every state. So basically, before Swift Jan Stevens tried to do this, <laughs> Broderbunch <laughs> tried to do this. Amazing. And they found the same thing where they did one state and then they were like, eh, I don't know, this is this is maybe a little too granular. And I'm going to huh. read a funny sentence from the Wikipedia summary about that game. And it is, the game sold around 5,000 copies, but its popularity was contained within North Dakota. <laughs> Ooh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Wouldn't I guess that would have happened. So I love these games. I've played a lot of, of where in time and uh, and yeah it's definitely my favorite are you familiar with the nintendo version of this aka mario is missing well i know there is also a super nintendo there version is. of where in time but um but but mario is missing is the i've never of, played the, it no it is one of the worst games of all time i actually <laughs> played it uh we did it i did it with um for for the podcast formerly known as how did this get played now they're just called get played <laughs> yes. um uh, and uh, it was atrocious. I made him play the game, but I remember, I remember it as a kid too. But anyway, it's it's basically you go around and find historical artifacts by like jumping on Koopas, and instead of actually learning things, you just have to kind of jump on Koopas in like a terrible version of Super Mario World. It's pretty silly. Um, as opposed to Carmen San Diego, where they have these like really interesting riddles that you'd have to solve, and you'd have to piece together puzzles to try to get to each place. Like you'd have to find the clues, and mm-hmm. I remember it being enjoyable i don't know how well it's aged but i remember at the time when when i was a kid it was enjoyable yeah i remember thinking the tv show was also really cool like all the mm-hmm. clues fun, and everything yes. plus the fact that there were kid contestants yeah they had this amazing chief played by an actress named lynn thigpen who was like who always had these ridiculous things to say she's yeah. hilarious um, just mm-hmm. like deadpan constantly incredible yeah the magnifying like, glass hey, gum yeah, shoes. the magnifying glass She'd yeah hey, gum shoes yeah talking to the group of kids which is a word i'd never heard in my life before that show and then was like uh-huh. okay gumshoe means detective i guess and then rockapella that rockapella song had no right to be as hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they did all the sound effects pretty much they were great that was like the whole era of carmen san diego yeah there was uh, this is related to my pick there was actually like a legit edutainment boom in the 90s and the learning company acquired a lot of these companies like they acquired uh the carmen san diego company like kirk said but they also acquired this other company mecc that made oregon trail which jason mentioned Mm -hmm. and mecc also made number munchers which is my pick Mm. and learning company was like buying up all these these companies in the mid 90s and became more powerful than ever, like harmonics in the era of rock band, and then <laughs> had a mighty fall that I read a couple articles about, but apparently Mattel acquired it and just completely squandered the acquisition and lost a boatload of money. And I don't fully get why, but apparently it was such a poorly done acquisition that it's like used in business classes as examples of what not to do when you have an acquisition of a company that's like wildly overperforming and you're not sure how to invest next. So if (laughs) people Mm. are economists, they can understand how badly Mattel screwed this up, which is part of why now... Even today, when I was like looking up what are the best edutainment games, you will still find Oregon Trail, Carmen San Diego, and like endless remakes and ports, and even Number Munchers and Math Blaster. Like all these games are still popular now because this was the time period when people were innovating in this area. It's not to say there's no new edutainment games, but a lot of these classics are still considered really cool. Um, so, Number Munchers, best game of all time. I played this game endlessly at the computer lab in my elementary school. And I was not good at math and I didn't like math. So I really can't explain why I thought Number Munchers was the coolest thing ever. But it's entirely, it's kind of like Pac-Man, 
but instead of mm-hmm. eating power pellets, you have to eat certain numbers. Math Blaster sort of operates in a similar way where you have to shoot at certain numbers, as I recall. Um, but in, in Number Munchers, you're just sort of walking around this this grid as the number muncher, the green guy who eats numbers, and you're avoiding trolls, sort of like the Pac-Man ghosts, that move at different speeds and can kill you on contact. But there's no power pellet. All you can ever do is avoid the trolls and eat the correct numbers as fast as possible. And um, I played it this week just for fun, and it still owns. And the best part Mm -hmm. of it is that every few levels, there are these little cutscenes where the number muncher will be playing pranks on the trolls. And they have nothing to do with anything, but they just sort of suppose this reality wherein the number muncher monster just creates elaborate Rube Goldberg machines that trap trolls. And I don't really know why that's a thing. But uh, my elementary school, and I don't know why, they were all obsessed with the primes level where you had to memorize every prime number and only eat prime numbers. And if you ate a non-prime, game over. Uh, So you just had to know all the prime numbers. I don't know why we thought that was the coolest thing ever, but everybody thought that was the best Hmm. and that all the other levels were boring. And (laughs) I tweeted about this and people were suggesting that perhaps it's because the other levels require knowing actual math, (laughs) whereas primes (laughs) is merely memorization. Uh, But Hmm. knowing uh, factors of 16, for example, or knowing, you know, multipliers of five and you just eat 25, you eat 20, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You do have to actually know some your times tables in order to defeat those levels. But for primes... You just got to memorize all the primes. And prime numbers are cool. Kids love primes. Maddie, do you think that this game helped prepare you for your future career by teaching you how to avoid trolls? Yeah, it did. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> did. Um, maybe that's why I liked it so much. I, I don't know if I can explain why. I think it was the same sensation that Pac-Man also provides, because I did later like Pac-Man on the Game Boy a lot, uh, which is just you try to do the correct thing as fast as possible while avoiding little sprites that appear in certain places on the screen. Again, no math was learned. And and I guess we can get into that next, which is just kind of, have you ever had an experience where you felt like you actually learned something from one of these games? <laughs> and I don't know if I ever have other than typing. It's interesting. Games. It's interesting because I feel like the best learning happens, at least for me, speaking personally, I guess, the best learning has happened when I didn't think that I was learning or like when I wasn't playing a game to learn. So like whether it was like learning how to read from like playing text-based games and RPGs and stuff or learning how to type from playing online muds as a kid, which really taught me how to type fast. Um uh or like I don't know, learning history from like an Assassin's Creed game or something like I, I think that the best the best education and maybe this is part of the downfall of edutainment and why, as you pointed out, Oregon Trail and all these other games are still considered the height of the the form. I think the best uh, education comes when you're not even realizing that you're learning because you don't have to like actively think and be like, oh, I'm learning. I'm doing homework now. <laughs> I think that's true, though. I'm not sure if I totally frame it that way, only because I don't think you have to trick kids into learning. Um, Like, I think you can learn just, like, it's all in how the information is presented to you. Um, I think that actually Hamilton is a great example of edutainment, Mm. because Mm. Hamilton, 
actually teaches a lot. Obviously, it's a musical. It changes some things about history. But I didn't know anything about Alexander Hamilton. And now I really do know a lot about him. And it's not just because I went and learned about him after watching that musical. You you kind of watch that show. And if you get into it or you learn it or you see it, you get a sense of like who he was. And you see all these people. And it's a story that you're kind of involved in, that you're watching. Obviously, it's not a game. But it's not that different from Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed Origins is a great example of a game where you're interacting with the, you know these different famous figures from mm-hmm. that that period of time um or assassin's creed 3 Kirk, I, I just want to point out i just want to point out that in hamilton there's a, a line that says uh martha washington named her tomcat after hamilton and then hamilton lin-manuel chimes in to say that's true um and it turns out that it's not true so actually hamilton <laughs> wow. does not teach you true facts okay. thanks cinema sense <laughs> Also, it turns out it turns out that none of them were actually people of color. It turns out they were all white and owned slaves. I I, I, I just learned this. That's true. Some some significant distortions, I suppose. But um, you you will learn the names of these people, which is more than I think a lot of yes. people can do. If you play a game like Crusader Kings, you'll learn the locations of nations in Europe. You'll learn some things about European history, even though that is a video game that's distorting things. If you play Assassin's Creed 3, you'll be present at major moments in American history, and you'll see us at times very interesting perspective on those moments. And again, because you're walking around and talking to George Washington and doing quests for him, and he's like an actual part of the story that you're playing, I think that that gives it a little more stickiness than something like Carmen Sandiego. As much as I love it, a lot of the history and the, I guess, geography and whatever that's taught in Carmen Sandiego, it's sort of held in the compartment of what's compelling about the game. It's just like you open up your cool time travel thing and you travel to, you know, wherever... Brazil, and you're in Brazil, and it starts telling you some Brazilian history, and it just sort of says it on the screen. And at least when I was a kid, I would be like, okay, I don't know, I would kind of skim over it and go learn things if I needed to, like, catch the crook. But it wasn't like an integral part of the experience or of what made it fun. What made it fun was the feeling of, you know, being a gumshoe on an international manhunt and, you know, chasing down clues and all the little animations and the things they used to kind of trick me into learning. That was actually the main reason I was there, where if it had been like an integrated part of the story, I would have learned more. And I think that's true also of like modern games, like uh, Minecraft is a good example, where you learn a lot of stuff playing Minecraft. It's just not setting out to teach it to you. It's just in the experience of playing it. Mm-hmm. Also learn what a gumshoe is. Yeah. That's, that's what's really important. That's the main thing I learned as a kid, for <laughs> Most sure. Most people learn that from Phoenix, right? <laughs> yeah. I To the Assassin's Creed tip, I also feel like I've learned a lot because as an adult playing Assassin's Creed, it is easy for me to Google everything that's happening in there and be like, what really happened in this scenario? Yeah. And as a kid... That was not an option for me. So if I was playing something that was showing me history like Oregon Trail or Amazon Trail, I had an Encyclopedia Britannica and I even had one on CD-ROM, but that was about as far as that went. And that information was sadly limited. So I do feel like the times have changed aspect of it. Like to me, Googling something and going down a Wikipedia rabbit hole is almost like a game in and of itself or like a rewarding additional game on top of Assassin's Creed, where I remember when I was playing the Vikings game, I talked about how one of the most fun parts of it was looking up how accurate a lot of the depictions of the Vikings getting to England were and like how fun that was for me. But as a kid, I didn't necessarily have that. The example I included here was typing games because... 
for me, that's just like learning the buttons of a fighting game or anything else. Like that's a form of learning that I actually think is perfectly suited for a game format. I can't think of a better way to learn how to type, honestly, than, you know, typing of the dead or Mavis Beacon if you're too young for a zombie game. Or Mario Teaches Typing. Yeah, Mario Teaches Typing. We had that at my school. And you could play as Princess Peach in Mario Teaches Typing, which was a huge deal to me as a kid, the fact Mm. that you could play as a female character. So that, almost like Number Munchers, I guess, was also teaching me rote memorization, which I think may or may not have worked typing games did work because it's just it's from a to b you're learning the thing you're doing and that works right you're learning a technical skill which is also why i think um, music games like guitar smith and and uh, rock band yeah guitar hero i was thinking of the same thing yeah because yeah. guitar hero and rock band are they're great for teaching music appreciation like if you play paul mccartney's bass lines in the beatles rock band you'll really hear his bass lines more and get a sense of them, but you're not really learning bass. But then, of course, eventually Rock Band 3 was trying to really teach guitar. You could learn piano. And then Guitar Smith, a game that I've many times copped to the fact that I kind of maligned it when it first came out because I didn't like it, and have now really come around on it, and have talked to a lot of people who've like learned guitar from that game. It's a great way to learn just the, the basics of just having, you know, it gives you a simplified version of whatever part you're trying to learn. Then you get a more complicated one. It can slow things down and speed things up. It's just basic technical practice. The thing it doesn't teach you is how to play good music, like how to be musical. But that's kind of okay because like typing of the dead doesn't teach you how to write well. (laughs) It just teaches you how to type fast. Like it's good at the really direct technical skill, if not the sort of abstract creative application of that technical skill. So, yeah, I think there's that that kind of key difference between using uh, setting out to learn something and using the game for that versus like playing edutainment as a kid. I don't think a lot of kids are setting out to learn things. Um, but yeah, but gamifying this education, I mean, I, I've been thinking about uh, Wani Kani, which is this great website that you can learn to use Japanese kanji that essentially gamifies it by turning mm-hmm. it into this like flashcardy system where uh, you have you go on these hot streaks and if you uh, to to like pass to new levels and unlock new kanji to learn, you have to get enough right in a row and they're spaced out and it's a very smart very smart gamified system and it, you even go through levels like you're level 20 in mm-hmm. Wanikani um, and that sort of thing I think is uh, gamifying education I think can be really effective. It can. Yeah. I, I was surprised although maybe shouldn't have been how many times Duolingo appeared as a game suggestion mm-hmm. for edutainment. Yeah that's an interesting one. Although that is so, it's become so infested with microtransactions that it's like hard to use. Yeah, I mean, it's a a real game now. (laughs) It is a real game now. It is a game for learning languages. And I also think that it doesn't work as well as speaking a language aloud, which is a whole other conversation we could have that's not entirely dissimilar to Kirk's point about music, but is is also related to the technical skill of learning and how brains work and how memory works, especially conversation skills, that aspect of of learning a language is very hard to put into a game. Um, But it was interesting to me that so many people see Duolingo as an edutainment game, which might actually be a better way to think about what Duolingo is really providing you than to think of it as a language learning app that is definitely teaching you the (laughs) language because there's so much gamification in it. And of course, also now microtransactions that is designed to keep you studying but may or may not be helping you learn or remember anything any better than you would if you studied in some other way. 
Right. I mean, games and video games in particular, they're just they share so much in common with teaching mm-hmm. that it's just such a natural fit for people to start thinking, well, how can we use these to actually teach something that's curriculum at our school? Because games, every game any of us has ever played has taught us and it's taught us in this like systematized way where they scaffold the amount of information you get and there are periodic tests, call and boss fights. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like you, you can gauge how you're doing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're literally graded, you know, you play Bayonetta and you get a yeah, well, you get I an get S like rank. An e or... and, yeah, I definitely get an S rank all the time. Sometimes the boss fights are literally quizzes, like when you fight a Sphinx in a game called mm-hmm. uh, Monster Boy and Wonderland. Sure. You know? sure you... <laughs> Sorry, Wonder Boy and Or Winston Persona. Like... In Persona, you have to, to actually take quizzes at yeah, school. Persona, you have to and actually you have to yeah, actually yeah. answer test questions. It's hard. I just had to bring up a random Sega Genesis game. <laughs> so every game is structured in this way. And as a result, it makes sense that you would just like think, oh, well, I can just apply this to a curriculum and it'll work the same way. And I think as we're talking about, that does work well with really technical stuff, rote memorization and even more just technical skills like typing. And it's harder with stuff like the humanities, with history or with communication skills. And like language is a great example where you can learn a lot of the practical stuff, but there needs to be some extra step where you learn how to have a conversation and how to actually do it just because your brain will kind of it kind of needs that context as well to really solidify what you've learned, which is certainly true of music, right? I mean, you can memorize scales all day, but if you sit down and actually play with people, that hour that you spent will be worth as much as like 10 hours of memorizing scales just because it'll like mm. lock all this stuff into place. And so it's kind of, it's interesting the way that, it's interesting how we learn, I guess, and how that's changed, especially with the internet. Jason, and I was thinking about what you said about how, when these games came out, they were kind of self-contained. It's the reason that Carmen Sandiego shipped with an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. You would learn the thing and you you learn it all right there. Mm-hmm. And now because that's not necessary, because there are like literal articles that are just, here's the true history behind Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And it's some person, like a historian, has written a whole thing explaining everything. And you can play the game and then go read that. It, you kind of don't need to play, you know, the Viking history edutainment game. You can just play the action adventure game that sort of shows you a bunch of stuff and gets you interested in the setting and then go read the article and then read a book and maybe learn some other things. Like that seems like actually kind of a good way that video games help bolster learning, even if they're not like full on curriculum, you know, classroom tools. Bing! Kirk here, as I edit the episode, I just wanted to mention something that we didn't get into in the episode, but that some of you are probably scratching your heads wondering when we're going to talk about, and that is the Assassin's Creed educational versions, which they release these, you know, combat-free educational history tours where you could go through Assassin's Creed Valhalla or Assassin's Creed Origins, and you can learn more about the setting and the actual history. Those are really cool in theory. None of us have really played them, I don't think, so I've seen some criticism of them. I've seen some people saying they're cool. We don't really know, but I wanted to at least mention them because they're relevant in this context and we know about them we just don't have a lot of experience with them and i think that's why we didn't get into it so if you were wondering about it um yeah that's why we didn't mention it okay back to the conversation bing oh wait i'm still here that was that was a pretty bad bing okay let's try this again back to the conversation bing yeah as soon as i played god of war 2018 i bought uh, a norse mythology book and was like man this is so cool i want to immerse myself in this setting for a while mm-hmm. um Awesome book, by the way, Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology. I think I talked about it on Split Screen back in the day. Yeah, I remember that. I do wonder, though, like, 
if if it just to circle back to a point that you made, Kirk, about the interactivity aspect and how you were like, if I'm talking to George Washington, that makes me more interested in learning about George Washington outside of the game. I feel like that actually is also related to the point that you were making about interactivity with language as well and with music as well. Like all of that seems related to me in terms of how somebody would learn in the sense that you that that extra layer of interactivity does help the humanities, but I don't think it helps with math. And I don't know how to fix that one because I remember as a kid, because I didn't like math, I notably wasn't bad at math. I simply didn't enjoy it. Uh, my parents kept trying to get me to like math and they gave me this math game called Super Solvers Outnumbered, uh, which I wrote about for Kotaku actually, because it's like a horror math game where you like, are attacked and then you have to do math problems. And it's like the most stressful experience I ever had as a child was getting attacked and then ordered to do math problems by robots. It's kind of like a nightmare. (laughs) It's the worst thing ever. Uh, But it's also kind of a cool idea because I can tell what it's trying to do. It's trying to take you out of the experience of just the rote memorization of the math problems. And it's trying to give you something that feels a little bit more like meeting George Washington or meeting Cleopatra and being like, oh, it'd be so cool to look up Cleopatra in my encyclopedia or whatever, or Google Mm -hmm. it if you have Google, then learn more about her. And that's, that's what's exciting about it and stimulating about it. But there's not quite a way to do that with the more technical based skills that takes them out of their element and also makes you curious about learning more and a robot attacking you and and ordering you to do math doesn't quite nail that. (laughs) That's true. I would want to hear from current math teachers because I believe, and this is, I'm a little out of my element here because I haven't talked to any math teachers since I was teaching more than 10 years ago, but I believe that math has changed the way that math is taught has changed maybe more than than some other disciplines and that math is taught very differently now and i'd be curious to know how it's changed and how they approach it differently how has it changed do you know do you know how it's changed all the numbers are backwards yeah everything's uh, (laughs) they switched minus and plus (laughs) i think the way that i think the way that teachers contextualize math i'm sure it's different at, at different schools but a lot of parents that i know who have kids who are older and are learning math have just kind of relayed to me in casual conversation you know wow they're really teaching math pretty differently now and it's really cool like it's it's Mm -hmm. they've gotten a lot better at teaching math over the last 20 years Mm -hmm. got it i think that with math it's not since it's more of like i don't know it's more of um formulas and systems than it is like information um i think games that teach you to like systems and appreciate systems that are kind of math like might help so like if you get into a jrpg where you have to figure out the best possible equipment for your character and you're like thinking in that logical sense that Mm. maybe can kind of translate to math a little bit or like a zachtronics game is a great example yeah or a puzzle game i think some of the professor layton games might be good ways to kind of teach that love of math anything that like encourages or logic at least because they're basically logic puzzles yeah i mean that's Mm -hmm. essentially when you get into higher level math that's essentially what you're talking about is like solve for x and Mm -hmm. use your use your foil equations to uh to find this uh the variables here um so yeah i think that maybe that's the the solution to all of uh all of our edutainment was mm-hmm. yeah and maybe yeah. it's an explanation for why i don't like jrpgs and why i that you should don't like math. never have even tried to tell myself <laughs> that i didn't like jrpg that i could like jrpgs um well 
So just one more question. Did you guys have any games at school that you weren't allowed to play, but you did anyway? Like, I know graphing calculator games at my school were a huge deal. They were a sensation sweeping the nation. And they were extremely banned and extremely not cool to play. What about you, Kirk? So when I was in grade school, so I'm a little bit older than you guys. And as a result, there wasn't quite the same level of knowledge about Doom Mm. or Wolfenstein. And so for me, I think it was I think Wolfenstein was out when I was in fifth grade or fourth grade. I remember we had a computer in school and that someone had brought in Wolfenstein. And I have a very vivid memory of playing Wolfenstein and shooting Nazis in 3D. That's educational. That's educational. (laughs) Sure. I learned how to shoot Nazis. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so at at that time it was not banned. And then by the time... Even by the time Doom was out, it was just a little later into the 90s. And mm. I don't think at my high school it was just really a thing, or at least not that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jason? Yeah, I don't remember any banned games at my school. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't think that anyone was even that like hooked up to the internet or interested in downloading like Doom or Wolfenstein. I think part of it is because that there weren't that many people who were into video games at my school. I do remember when we got into high school, when we were in ninth grade, um, our freshman computer class was full of us all just like... Like looking at uh, new grounds and like ridiculous mm-hmm. videos online because that was the very beginning of streaming video and that yeah. was really they had to really crack down because all we did was just like watch <laughs> highly inappropriate videos all the time. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, like this, uh, there's this website called SickAnimation.com that was just full of ridiculous stuff that that we would all pass around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but aside aside from that, I don't think we banned any games or anything like that. What about you, Maddie? I I mean, other than graphing calculator games, Newgrounds is really sparking some memories. I do remember downloading like Red versus Blue episodes and stuff like that at school and just the stupidest stuff to spend any time on when you're at school and you're supposed to be doing something else. But you know what? That was also educational in its own way. I learned an important lesson about logging out of my live journal at school so that other (laughs) people couldn't see my private live journal entries and that's that's important. You got to you got a really important lesson. You, <laughs> you got to learn that one the hard way. All right. Yeah. Well, we've learned a lot. We've taught a I lot. Think so. I think mm-hmm. I think it's time for us to take a break and uh, we'll be back with one more thing. In the briefest time, I feel like we got to know each other. Bro, I appreciate you so much for that. Do you read minds or what? It's really a very sacred space you've created here. <laughs> bullseye! You've hit the bullseye, baby! Bullseye! Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey! Did grad school ruin your reading habits? Oh my god, all those books you had to read for grad school? Did becoming a parent destroy your ability to focus on a book? Did the pandemic tank the number of novels you can get through in a year? Ugh, that happened to everyone, and we're Reading Glasses, and we're here to help. We'll get you out of a book slump, dismantle all that weird reader guilt. Which we know you have a lot of, but most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. We are back. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only one who played a video game, so I guess I'll That's go true. last. Kirk, why don't you tell me about your one more thing? 
My one more thing is social media, or more specifically, a social media check-in slash social media audit, which、mm. I kind of recently did. How many times has this been your one more thing? It's been a couple times, right? Like you not not. Well, I, know, I think、like、when you quit Twitter, you did a notable check-in on that and sort of your your decision to leave. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, this is something that I'm. Yeah, this is sort of an update on this.、Thing. That's interesting. I'm not. Yeah, this no, is not I'm, I want to hear just, the check-in. I'm just curious. Yeah, it sounded like you were saying, "Well, you're always talking about this." I don't think I am. But, no,、um, no, 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 no.、Well, I just find it very interesting. Me too. Um. So I. This is something that I pay a lot of attention to and have taken a lot of conscious steps around around social media. I guess people listening for a long time will know that. But if this is the first time you've ever heard me talk about it, yeah, I, I don't really tweet anymore. I still have a Twitter account. I. Just moved Instagram off of my phone, though I do、Whoa. have an Instagram account, and I just put it on my iPad, where it's not—it's like you have to use the phone app, so it's all terrible looking. <laughs> but I just decided to take it off. So I really wanted to mention it because I think it's a good idea to just do periodic check-ins, and I wanted to say that I just did one in the interest of you know、uh, giving someone else the idea if they had been maybe. Feeling a little stressed out online, or you know, thinking that maybe it was time to to just go through their social media life and and give everything a second look. That that might be good. I was talking to a, a friend of mine about Twitter, who's a, a heavy Twitter user, and giving the advice of you know you don't have to be on Twitter as much as you are, and you know, getting some of the usual responses that I get from a lot of people who use Twitter. Well, I have to use it, you know, I. I you know I I got to keep up on what's going on. That's kind of where everything's happening. I'm like you know you can keep up on what's going on and not be on it as much. So that's the thing basically that I did is auditing your social media. It doesn't have to mean going cold turkey. I think people tend to think in those dramatic terms like I'm going to delete all my accounts and, and go for a month with no social media and see what it's like. I guess you could do that, but you can also just like. Look at who you follow. That's a good thing to do an audit of. So just go through the list of all the people you follow and do that kind of Marie Kondo social media thing. Does this person bring me joy, <laughs> or、yeah. do they stress me out? When was the like was the last thing I saw from this person cool, or was it just maybe not that necessary in my life? You can audit where you keep. Your social media. This is something I tell people all the time. Like I just said, I took Instagram off my phone, so they just changed Instagram, or maybe not just, but they've changed it so that you you can't just scroll through the people you follow and just see what they're all up to. It now inserts a bunch of recommended stuff and ads and whatever into that feed. It used to be、mm. you could go through all your friends and then there'd be a little "you're all done,"、mm-hmm. and if you made the mistake of Going on past that, it'd be like, here's what the algorithm wants you to see. So for me, it's like a bunch of amazing guitar players and super cute dogs and like people living their most amazing lives. And I find that stuff pretty stressful overall. Like there just comes a point where I'm like, oh my god, like everyone's so amazing at music and all these people are so successful. I'm like,、ah. and their dogs are so much cuter than mine, right? And their dogs <laughs> all have like millions of, of Instagram followers. And you kind of just get that that feeling that Instagram tends to give people, which is like you're not good enough, you're not cool enough, you're not doing cool enough stuff, you don't have enough followers. And I think everyone feels that way, and it's because of the way they've changed it. It makes me feel even more that way. So I kind of was like, I'm gonna take this off my phone. I still use it. It's cool. I post strong. Stuff there.、I'm、just gonna put it on my iPad. I can check occasionally and use that to post. So that was the decision there. So like, do you need to have Twitter on your phone? For example, is a question I ask people very often.、Mm-hmm. So that's one question. And then the last question is really just like, which of these services do you even want to use? And the more I use Discord in particular, the less I feel like I even want to be on any other social media platform because that's a really nice place to be. So that's another good question. So, anyways, just wanted to give a little check in, and I don't know something I was thinking about this week, and that it might inspire other people to think about it as well.、Mm-hmm. Mm. Good stuff. I actually took Twitter off my phone. 
Uh, oh, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> weeks ago, and I thought about making it a topic on here, or my one more thing, because it was precipitated by getting harassed on Twitter over um, nothing, really. I mean, I would describe the tweet that led to it and what the situation was, but it's so boring. It's like, literally, yeah. why did it even happen? And it was one of those weeks where I was like, wow, looking at Twitter is making me feel terrible. Um, it's It's a bad place. So I'm just going to create a browser redirect so I can't look at it for several days and take it off my phone. And that was really nice because it then meant that when I went back to it, I was very intentionally reintroducing it and being like, do I want to mm -hmm. go to it today? And I, I'm still mostly in that place. Not having it on my phone is good because it means I have to actually walk over to a computer or like annoyingly open the browser on my phone and bother to log in because I don't leave it logged in. And also using the browser version of Twitter on a phone is terrible. So it's like you really need to send a tweet, which, you know, I still technically have the ability to do that if I had to for work. But almost never is that the case. So I do kind of recommend it in general, but... I don't know. It's tough. It's tough to get away from it. I, I don't know if yeah. I'm really done, but I tried. It's worth trying. It's always a process. <laughs> yeah. Jason, what's your one more thing? My one more thing is a TV show that you guys might have heard of. It's called The West Wing. No, no, never um, heard of it. Over the past few months, <laughs> over the past like year or so, I've slowly, gradually watched, rewatched the entirety of The West Wing. Wow. Um, wow. Which was, which is interesting. An interesting exercise. A time capsule. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know why I did it. I think sometimes you just have a craving for like that uh, quick wit Aaron Sorkin dialogue, and sure. you're just like, yeah. I mean, I just want just want it's something a, to entertain. It's a me very watchable for, show. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very watchable. Everything Aaron Sorkin is extremely watchable. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to unpack with it <laughs> that I won't get into. I won't get into every single detail or anything like that. Um, just a couple of quick thoughts on rewatch. One is that um, the centrism and the annoying aspects of like this this show wanting everybody to like uh, creating a political atmosphere that doesn't actually exist mm -hmm. is even more apparent today and even more egregious today when they're talking sure. about like like getting these Republican senators to vote on a bill that they're doing. It's just like it's hilariously uh, like awful in retrospect. Um, two is that uh, season five. So Aaron Sorkin leaves after season four. Season five is truly horrible and what a mess. Has some real mm -hmm. lows. But then it actually gets really good. Season six and seven are about this election uh, campaign between um, Jimmy Smits and Alan Alda, and they're both incredible actors, incredibly charismatic. And the writing gets way better, and they go on these campaigns, which are fascinating. And there's some really good episodes. In fact, I would encourage anyone out there to like if if you've uh, watch the West Wing in the past if you've watched it all and like are thinking about rewatching it. Like, go rewatch season six and seven because there's a lot of good stuff in the, on the campaign trail. A lot of just like interesting strategy and political debates and like going to different states and uh, obviously Jimmy Smith and Alan Alda are always very fun to watch. But it's it's cool to see how they approach the different campaigns and uh, uh, again some weirdness in terms of like this moderate Republican who is like very likable in all these different ways. That that you would never actually see today, but uh, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, yeah, man, it's I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this show today. It's it's extremely watchable, extremely brilliant in many ways, extremely horrible in many ways. It's just the Sorkin experience. A real time <laughs> capsule of 90s liberalism. Yeah. It is, yeah. Early 2000s, 90s. I think yeah. it's, 
a good cultural artifact for that reason, even though I find mm -hmm. it to be too smarmy to watch now or almost like too self-congratulatory, even though when I first watched it, I liked it because I guess I was feeling myself congratulated as a smarmy liberal at the time. But now mm -hmm. watching it um, as just a wacky eyed socialist, I can't yes, I there, can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> there are moments that are like that for sure, but there are also moments that are just amazing television. There's this episode, this the finale of season two called Two Cathedrals is just like a top tier all time oh, yeah. piece of television. There's some good stuff in there. You just yeah, you have to wade through a lot of smarm if you're gonna rewatch it to to get to the good the good meat of it. Mm-hmm. So I also <laughs> engaged with a pop culture artifact, which is a video game that's currently on Xbox Game Pass. It's called Dante's Inferno. <laughs> it came out in 2010. And I had a roommate who played this game and I watched it for a little bit way back in 2010. I feel like the important context is that this person was unemployed at the time and playing a lot of video games. <laughs> and that's really the only reason to play Dante's Inferno. Uh, or if you're me and you think it's really funny to play it in 2022 because you kind of remember seeing it back then and being like, they made a video game version of Dante's Inferno, the poem that I read in college and wrote multiple papers about. Sounds like some edutainment to me. Do doesn't it sound like some edutainment? <laughs> It's really nothing like the poem at all. <laughs> um, and the ways in which it is nothing like the poem are hilarious and feel like it is a fake video game that was created in a sitcom to make fun of something that a video game would do. Yes. But it uh -huh. is instead a real game that was made by Visceral Games, as in, like, makers of Dead Space, although as near as I can tell from Wikipedia searching, none of the same people ever worked on Dead Space, but that at least kind of contextualizes when it came out and the era. This is made by Visceral Montreal, which mm -hmm. is a different studio that was absorbed into Visceral. That makes um, sense. Yeah. I wrote a book that that talks about Visceral a lot, so you can go check it out. It's called Press or Set. Never, never heard of that. Um, so back, mm -mm. To, back to me. So Dante's Inferno depicts Dante as the main character. He is not the poet. He is instead a soldier who takes part in the Crusades. And his wife, Beatrice, is also in the game. And she has been kidnapped by Lucifer himself to become his bride because... Unbeknownst to you, Beatrice has made a deal with the devil that when you go off on the Crusades and fight your holy war, uh, you will not cheat on her while you're out there. But unfortunately, you did cheat on her. Well, none of this sounds problematic at all. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. It's perfect. The portrayal of women, the portrayal of the Arab characters in the Crusades. It's all great. 10 out of 10. Just, great representation. It's honestly... It's part of why playing the game is kind of incredible now. Like, I don't recommend it, but it's also incredible because it's like it's doing everything wrong, <laughs> but to a level where it feels almost like it's in on its own joke. Right. Because it's you're like, satire. this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But the people who made this must have also known that and at some point must have just started leaning into it and being like, 
whatever, man, like this is going to be nothing like the poem. Like why other than just the most base comparisons, like every level you meet up with Virgil, the poet, the ghost of Virgil, and he tells you some more information. Like he's still in there. He's still guiding you through all seven circles of hell. But you also have a massive axe and you have to like fight fully naked demons constantly. There's a lot of boobs (laughs) in this game. There's a lot of like massive phalluses in the lust circle of hell. There's a lot of extremely gory and like outright sexual content that I just don't see games do anymore in this like exploited exploitation film kind of a way. Like it's just the pure id of gaming in 2010 to such an extent that I feel like even in 2010, people were like, this isn't okay. Like, I don't know what this is. Like, even then. Yeah, well, something something that's important to mention here is the game became infamous for its marketing campaign. Yes. Like, Do you want to talk about that a little? Because you remember it better than I yeah, do. Yeah, there were a couple of ridiculous things. So they, they sent out checks to reviewers for $200 and yep. were like, if you if you like don't cash this, it will be sinful, like squandering wealth. If you do cash it, you will succumb to your greed. And um, <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. They during E three two thousand nine, there were these. There was a group of protesters who like claimed they were like religious Christian people protesting the game. Mm-hmm. And then news word came out later that these weren't actually protesters; they were hired actors from EA that EA hired to pretend to protest Dante's Inferno, like as if anyone would actually protest or care enough about Dante's Inferno, <laughs> the video game, to protest it. Yeah, that's the type of marketing campaign this was. I'm sure there was a lot more crazy stuff like on social it was media mass we pray right they made a fake video game that they were yes the game they made a fake game where you can pray um in protest of dante's inferno it was like a motion motion capture game where you would like do praying motions uh but it was like a joke it was sort of like even this marketing campaign was itself a joke about the idea of doing a dante's inferno video game but Perhaps the weirdest and funniest part of all is that the combat is actually pretty good. Like, it's pretty fun. (laughs) There are terrible puzzles that are inscrutable. The game gives you no hints. There's none of the, like, little fairy on your shoulder telling you where to go. There's no, like, arrows everywhere directing you. All those modern... Uh, ways that games help you out are not present at all. You simply have to muddle your way through hell and push boxes all by your lonesome. But actually slapping around some naked demons with axes feels pretty fun and good. So there is a weirdly vocal contingent of, I want to say it seems like almost entirely dudes on GameFAQs forums who claim that this is the best game ever and that it actually owns because the axe fighting feels so good. However, they could just play God of War, of course. I'm going to blow your mind right now. Oh, yeah? Uh, the lead combat designer of Dante's Inferno is Vincent Napoli, who went on to design the combat for God of War, the most recent reboot. I am not surprised by that at all. And then, and then went to Crystal Dynamics to work on the Avengers and did hey, combat for that. I'm so, sure uh, Thor's hammer feels good in that game because of that, honestly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of similarities there. Yeah, that's that is definitely relevant context is that God of War 3 also came out in 2010, and this is very much a God of War clone. Oh, it is. It's yeah. it's a lot like which, and I would think, especially God of War two, that you would enjoy that game if you're enjoying Dante's Inferno. <laughs> um, it's I don't a it's know. a better version in a lot of ways. If it were on Game Pass, I might check it out. I don't know that anyone should play Dante's Inferno. I'm having a great time, but it's also the most disgusting video game of all time. Like, I will just say one more example, <laughs> which is 
At one point, you fight an extremely tall version of Cleopatra. Yes, Cleopatra, who you might know from Assassin's Creed Origins. She is fully <laughs> naked, and her boobs, so her nipples open up and tongues come out, which is disgusting. But there's another part where her nipples open up and little tiny angry babies come out. And that moment genuinely made me feel like I was going to throw up. Like watching wow. that happen, I was like, I kind of feel like I might throw up right now. Like I can't watch this unfold. What you've so, never seen a nipple <laughs> shoot out babies? Come no, I never That's where seen babies it. come from. Maddie. And I was also like, who came up with this? And like, are they okay? I have a lot of questions, but hey, I'm still playing it, so I'll probably beat it. I'm like six and a half hours in, and it's only like eight hours long. So at this point, you know, I've gotten to the sixth circle of You're hell out of seven. Uh, May as uh. well rescue my wife from Lucifer, even though, frankly, I don't deserve her. And I know this game is going to end with up, us ending up together, and I don't think it's uh, Maddie, I don't want to crush your dreams or anything, but aren't there nine circles? Oh, you're right. Dante's there Inferno? are nine circles of hell, aren't there? Yeah, I'm only on the sixth one, I think. So mm. I've got a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, you've got to descend. <laughs> got to yeah, fight a lot more, more nipple, nipple demons. I hope not. That was just the lust level. I think I'm done with that. Uh, so yeah, that's me. Um, edutainment, you know? Edutainment. Sure. I'm learning yeah, a lot. Yeah, you're learning a lot. I'm Literature, remembering what man. it was like to read Dante's Inferno in college, and I'm remembering the combos, just the endless combos that I had to memorize back then, and they're all paying off now. So, nice. uh... That's that's another episode, folks. We did it again. Yes, we did. We it. did. We learned so much. Just a reminder, we'll be off next week, but we'll stick in a little bonus episode for as a treat while we're gone, and then uh, and then we'll be back as normal in two weeks. That's right. All right. Cool. All right. See you both in a couple of weeks. Yep. See you soon. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.